Hi, I'm Ashley, and this is my podcast, Cannabis Curious. I joined the cannabis industry in 2018 when I left my full-time corporate job to pursue a cannabis business license in the state of Michigan. As a former regulatory professional, strategy and change management expert, and chronic pain sufferer, cannabis legalization has me firing on all cylinders. It's the perfect convergence of my personal, professional, and philosophical worlds. Cannabis Curious is an outlet for my inner nerd, but more than that, it's a place to shine a light on the stories of others. As cannabis legalization sweeps the globe, I'm committed to finding and providing a platform for the many distinct voices in cannabis. I've always admired activists and entrepreneurs who stepped away from the crowd to relentlessly pursue a future others can't yet see. On this podcast, you will find those people. Cannabis Curious is where I sit down with owners, operators, artists, activists, leaders, breeders, marketers, researchers, financers, and many more colorful, smart, and fun people in the industry. And I'm excited to bring these people to you. Today, we sit down with Shirali Patel, a licensed practicing attorney and the founder of Blaze Responsibly. Shirali has been in the industry since 2018. Our conversation takes a deeper look into why the language used to write the laws, regulations, and policies in states with legal markets matters. I had a great time getting to know Shirali and learning more about her legal experience and how we can all affect change at the state level. Thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Cannabis Curious Podcast. This time I'm sitting down with Shirali Patel, and I'm very excited for this conversation. Hi, Shirali. Hi, Ashley. Thanks for having me. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing well. So I am pumped for this conversation because um, you're an attorney. So you have sort of a policy background, a legal background, which is near and dear to my heart. Um, That's very much uh, what brought my interest in cannabis was sort of how policy was going to shape businesses and communities as well as media and marketing. So you are the founder of Blaze Responsibly, which is a really awesome um, online presence for helping to create education and awareness around cannabis policy and law, um, as well as just cannabis itself. And so super accomplished in the in this space and, and really excited to have you on. Thanks, Ashley. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. Well, I know that cannabis is very personal to you. And so I'd love to just learn a little bit more about your sort of relationship with the plant and why it's been important to you to do education and advocacy and get involved in the legal space. Yeah, no, for sure. So I've, I think like most people, you know, became really curious about the plant in college. That was my first introduction to it. And I didn't, you know, look more into it except for this is something that I can do to help me relax. And, you know, I, it was definitely better than what alcohol was doing for me at the time. Um, But it wasn't until I started to see people around me benefit from the medicinal value of the plant. And specifically one of my friends who we went to college together and, you know, he was always around and he was always a big component of cannabis and would always say like, you know, we can do something with this plant, not knowing what, but um, he unfortunately became addicted to opioids and pharmaceuticals. And sadly, I lost him to an accidental overdose in August of 2018. And that really hit me hard because if it wasn't for the plant, 
maybe he would have been gone sooner. I feel like it helped him a lot. And um, that same year, my aunt had come from India for treatment. She was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer and it was metastatic from the onset. So she really, it was really difficult because it's not like she stood much of a chance, but you know, she was thinking coming to America would give her possibly better treatment and maybe a better quality of life. And so when she came here, we went to her oncologist to get her prescribed for medical cannabis because at the time in New Jersey, terminally ill patients and cancer um, are eligible conditions to, to get, you know, a medical prescription. And her oncologist laughed in our faces, you know, said in all of his years of being an oncologist, he never prescribed it and he didn't believe in it. And instead, he put her on opioids and morphine and you know, oxy. And so essentially, she's like a zombie. She's constipated, doesn't have an appetite. And it was really terrible for my family to have to see and deal with. And so I found myself going to other states like D.C., um, which was the closest place for me where I can get products like transdermal patches for her or topicals because because of her lung cancer, she couldn't consume like the traditional route. Um, but that experience in itself showed my whole family like, okay, this is not a drug. This is a plant. Here's the difference between a woman who's dying on an opioid versus a natural plant. And they saw that when she was eating an edible, she had cravings and she was smiling and she was alive. And it felt really good. And it also hurt to know that there's so many people like her who couldn't get access to medicine that they needed um, during a time like, you know, that. And so 2018 is really when I decided, okay, I lost two people. I have angels above now. I lost two other actually family members that same year to cancer as well. And so it just hit me hard that life is short and I have always loved the plant, but now I see like the power behind it. And I decided that I want to really shift my purpose and focus in life and, and make it about cannabis and educating myself. So that's really the impetus on why I just started to immerse myself even more. Yeah, to have the doctor sort of laugh in your face and then to have such a, a, a powerful kind of like um, real sort of example of how good cannabis can be because it's, you know, her experience on cannabis versus opioids was so different. So it's unfortunate. It's a lot of deep, deep, deep programming, deep misunderstanding. And, and to your point, a lot of people deeply suffer because of it. Our oncologists don't get trained in med school, right? It's still federally illegal. And so they, I'm not saying that they're to blame, but it's definitely difficult when you're going up against, you know, years of just brainwashing that this is not a tool. It's not a medicine. When, when the fact is that it really is a medicine and we saw, you know, firsthand the side effects of pharmaceutical pills. And whereas the, you know, med, the edibles or like her topicals, there was no side effects. It, it gave her just pure relief. And like we, we have videos like of her, you know, when she took an edible because it was just, it was that different. Like she was essentially um, bedridden for a lot of her time when she came here for treatment. And anytime we gave her an edible though, like she was up and about. Wow. So it was just amazing. Um, she was 50. She was young. And I feel like nobody at any age should have to suffer for something that's considered legal in a state. Like, you know, it's different if I was in another state where it wasn't legal at the time and I knew I couldn't have access to it. But to know that there was access in the state that I live and to still not have access to it was really frustrating. Yeah. What state were you in at the time? 
In New Jersey. Okay. Born and raised. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I knew that's where you were currently. I just wasn't sure that's where you were when that was all happening. I mean, but like truly, truly frustrating. Like after suffering quite a bit of loss, I mean, you turn that into, I guess, really, truly like inspiration to do something differently, something something much more like aligned maybe with your sort of values. And um, and is that when Blaze responsibly started is sort of talk to me about what was the path from 2018 to now? Yeah. So maybe like even like before, like probably around 2016. So I don't know if you remember when like we were at the height of the opioid epidemic, but like around 2013, 2014, that time is when you know, my friend Harris, who's no longer with us, but him and like several other people around me were all addicted, unfortunately. And that's when I was like starting to see, okay, cannabis is something because that was the only thing that was helping my friends at the time get off of hardcore drugs and stay clean and stay sober and have, and it was helping them with their withdrawals and everything. And so I started getting curious about it then. And then in 2016 is um when I decided to just take a trip out to Colorado to like learn, you know, firsthand and kind of see what was happening in the industry and like learn about the medical aspects and just educate myself. So like I had started doing like the research and stuff, but it was still more like just personal knowledge, you know, really just let me like educate myself. And like, so then when in 2018, when that happened, that's when I was like, okay, what do I do now? And, and how do I do this? And so I think because I had like those two prior years of just educating myself and networking, I just put, started to put myself more out there and reaching out to those people that I had made connections with. Um, and in 2019 is really when I, I trademarked Blaze responsibly actually for um, just like ancillary services and merchandise just to protect my IP. But um, I was introduced to a team in 2019 who, they were working with partners out in Michigan who are already licensed in the space. And they approached me to join their team. And I earned my sweat equity, navigated a vertical medical license in, in New Jersey. I you know, helped them with banking, getting them the letter of support. And that whole process is really what validated it for me inside. And I said, okay, here I am in 2018, like at one of my lowest points, just just really sad about life in general and like, what do I do? I want to do something in this space. And then out of nowhere in 2019, it's kind of like kept asking the universe to like push me towards what I'm supposed to do. And then that's when I got introduced to the team. So I applied in 2019 as the president of a company. We're still waiting. It's a, it's pending in New Jersey still to find out if we won or not. But that whole process is what told me, okay, now I can make Blaze responsibly a reality. And what the goal of Blaze Responsibly was, was to create content for free um, to educate the community about what legalization is, what decriminalization is, you know, what are avenues to get into the industry. And so it was kind of all like a domino effect, but it really, it started a couple years before until I was able to um, really get going. But it was all strategy and planning and, and doing it right because I, I've, I've seen, um, you know, people fail and I've seen how businesses work and um, I was able to like learn a lot of lessons like along the way and, and learn from other people's mistakes. And so I feel like Blaze Responsibly, I could have started it in 2018, 2019, but I really didn't bring it to life until last year in 2020. 
Wow, that's really fascinating because you have such a strong online presence. Um, you're and the content is really, um, really meaningful. Like you gain like quick knowledge. Um, so I love like that's just interesting to know that you really took your time setting it up because you can kind of see that now, like in the execution of it, right? Like it's it's done really well. Thank you. So yeah, it took a lot of time, and I struggled with how to do it and what was the best way and. And I also thought about credibility and, and before I was like, how can I go out there and educate the world if I really haven't done anything in cannabis? So then when I did the whole licensing process for the medical application, that's when I was like, okay, now I can share my experience and how I went through the process and you know what it looks like to actually do an application and get your real estate in line, you know, dealing with other vendors, et cetera. And so that's the whole goal because I'm sure you know, as you know, just navigating it as a, as a woman and as a woman of color is like two different um, narratives. And so yeah. my hope is that through sharing my experience, like other people can kind of get empowered and like make it easier for them to be equipped to have, you know, the conversations that they're going to be having in the future. But you're also, but your background is you're an attorney as well. Is that correct? I was, and I still am by profession an attorney. Um, so I, I started my career working in public service. And so I worked for different government entities. It was um, County Council for the County of Bergen. I worked in the city of Newark, which is one of the busiest courtrooms in the state. I was also in uh, the city of Hoboken where I prosecuted a lot of cases. Fortunately, I never had to send anybody to jail. Um, In a quick story, I actually had somebody ask me if he could spend a night in jail because he couldn't afford the fine. And I couldn't even believe that that would be considered an option, but that's what happens on the regular. And I told him, you know, you don't need, you don't need to go to jail. We will give you a payment plan. We will give you the lowest possible fine and it works out. But it's just terrible to know that I got to see, and I'm sure many people have seen firsthand the, the flawed criminal justice system that we have. Um, and so public service was really valuable for me and I learned a lot. And then through public services where I, landed at my next position, which was at a class action litigation firm. And I joined them because I wanted to be be a part of the national opioids litigation. And that was the year I'd lost my friend. And so that was a dream. If I can work on the cases against, you know, big pharma like Purdue and McKesson and Cardinal Health, then I would feel really good that I had, you know, done something right for justice in that aspect. And so I joined the firm. I was with them for a little over a year and a half and um, doing class action work. So litigating against Walmart, Mercedes, the diesels emissions cases, and all the while in the background doing cannabis <laughs> as well. Um, and so that's, the legal world is still really much real for me. I, I'm starting a new position actually on Monday at a firm in New Jersey where I'll just be doing cannabis law, helping future cannabis applicants and businesses um, and I also joined a separate company, Digital Venture Partners, where I am their chief compliance officer and managing partner. So the, the legal world is still very much real for me in, in my daily, in addition to the cannabis world. Well, like you're truly inspiring. Oh, and you yeah. are because they, like you, you really do put your sort of like values into action, like to, to go work for a, a law firm doing class action suit against opioids because of your personal experience. Like that's really beautiful. <laughs> You know, if I was if I was your angel in heaven, I'd be like, hell yeah, thank you. <laughs> That's why I 
I do it for them. And I think that's why it works. Like I never in my life thought when I was working at Bergen County, when I first started that I would be able to work on the national opioids litigation. It was a far-fetched dream. And same thing with the medical license. I never thought I would be on a medical license, even if it is pending, because I just didn't feel, you know, either qualified or, or having the right credentials. But then when you work towards something, eventually you do earn it and you do deserve it because you put in the work. And I see that anything in life, as long as you keep working on it and you have the right intentions, the right things work out for you mm -hmm. somehow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And so now you're an attorney helping other folks get through, other businesses get through the licensing process in the state of New Jersey. Is that fair to say? Yes. Okay. Which is Definitely. incredible. So that sounds like really fun work. And I know that there's a lot of recent exciting, you know, happenings in New Jersey, like officially sort of legalizing. And so now there's policy and regs presumably being written. So I'm sure that you're, you're like very busy, like drinking from the fire hose, as they say. <laughs> it is, yeah, it, it's pretty crazy. Um, I was part of the adult use NJ can campaign, which was successful. I was actually the South Asian liaison. So my like specific role was to target our community and kind of educate them on what the, because it was a ballot question in New Jersey. So it was left up to the voters, which overwhelmingly voted in favor of it. But my role was to educate in the South Asian community specifically about it and to get them to vote because getting educated is one thing and then voting is a whole nother thing. Um, but it worked out. And so it was, it was really interesting just to see how my community opened up to it because it's so ingrained back in India, in our culture and in religion, in the scriptures, yet nobody talks about it. It's so taboo, hush, hush. And so for me, as like a woman of color to come out and say, hey guys, like, you know, I'm a patient, I love this plant. And, you know, we're about to legalize it in New Jersey and hopefully you can be a part of it. And here's why, and here's why you don't want to like miss out. It was just, it was nice to get the reaction that I got it because I was, I was thinking that they wouldn't be receptive but they were, and now that we legalized adult use in New Jersey, it's been nonstop. Um, I, I get calls from so many different people, and it's always nice because I always take everybody's calls because I always want to learn, like, you know, how can I help you? Or, like, what did it, can I, is there anything that I can offer? And to see, like, people in my community now wanting to get into this space and, like, figuring out ancillary opportunities, it's, it's really exciting, so... I feel really blessed just to be in this moment right now because it, it used to feel like um like a dream ten years ago when you're you know when you're in college and you're like I hope this happens and now to see it actually happening is pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, it really is. And the, I mean, it's kind of it's amazing for you too that the people that you work to sort of educate and get out to vote now are looking to you to get involved in it as well. Like that's a really beautiful for, full circle moment. It is. Yeah, I can imagine that it, it feels um, really, really good. So can you talk to me a little bit about why the laws matter so much? Like why the language of the law matters so much to how these regulated markets are being stood up? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's crucial, right? Because enabling legislation is what sets the framework for rulemaking to happen. And so I think people... I think there's a really good distinction that people don't realize is that when a state legislature, so the Senate and Assembly, typically in a state, they're the ones that are you know, drafting up the bills. And when they get passed, they go up to the governor, signs it into law. 
that bill, so say it's a legalization bill, that's just setting out the outline of like potential opportunities and, you know, license categories. It's like a general skeleton. Then what happens is the state creates an agency. So like a cannabis regulatory, you know, commission or an agency, they're in charge with actually drafting the rules and regulations. And so the agency is limited to working within the confines of what the state passed, which is the legislation bill. And so just to give you an idea, like in New Jersey, for example, you know, if if the state says we're only going to have six licensing categories, the commission can't just create a seventh category. That's a material change. And so that would have to go back to the state for the state to then amend their original bill. And so that's why it's so critical on the onset when we're actually passing the initial legalization bills and decrim bills and or whatever kind of legislation is to make sure that the language actually speaks to what we want and to take our time. And I actually just recently spoke about this, but my favorite two words to give an idea of how important language is, the difference between words like may and shall, because may is not mandatory, it's optional, right? And so we it can, the bill can say, um, the agency may award up to 10% of social equity licenses. That's different than the commission shall award, up, you know, 10% of licenses. And so one may dilutes provisions, potentially, shall makes it more like a must. And so paying attention to not only what the, the, the language is creating, but how the language is creating the provisions is really important. And it's like, Looking at a state like Colorado, and you see when they passed their initial bill, they went back and amended the language so many times. And each amendment would affect um, entrepreneurs or operators. I had friends out in Colorado who had to spend you know, hundreds and thousands of dollars, for example, changing their packaging because the state now decided they didn't want opaque packaging. They wanted you know, X packaging. And so it's like for new states that are just legalizing it, I think it's really wise for them to take their time to look at states like Colorado and see like, okay, if they had to go through so many amendment processes to change the language, then maybe we should be mindful from the onset of taking our time and doing it right and um, making sure that the language actually speaks to the intent of what the people want and what they voted for. And so what are some of the ways that states could take more time up front? Like what are, I guess, some of the paths that the state could take so that the language doesn't need to then be revised or reviewed so many times? I think like, so for example, in New Jersey, like what happened was like they, we voted and then there was like this constitutional conundrum because we did a constitutional amendment and in order to effectuate a constitutional amendment, there needs to be enabling legislation. Like we have to pass something. And so there was this like rush to just get like a bill passed in order to meet, like, you know, not to have any issues. And so I feel like instead of what New Jersey could have done was say, you know, we're going to pass like an interim gap measure bill that says, okay, the arrest can stop right now. So that's like step one, like making sure if we're going to legalize, the arrest can stop. And then giving the state, you know, building in time, like saying we're going to take a year. And I think Virginia was a state that said, you know, we're going to legal we're going to recognize and decriminalize but we're going to take a year to like figure out this industry and they're letting the state know from up front like it's going to take us 
this much time to do our rules and regulations. So just be patient. Instead of like in New Jersey, what's happening is our enabling legislation built in a time frame of 180 days that the future cannabis commission has to come up with rules and regulations in. That's six months. Dang. That's so quick. Uh, yeah, it's so it's so, it's not enough time to create an entire adult use industry. No, let alone you know staffing and infrastructure. And so I feel like states can just be mindful of like you don't need to rush the process. Like give yourself the time. No one's gonna complain if you do it right. But if you rush the process and then are going back to make amendments anyways, it's like, why do that, right? Like, why don't, why don't we just, it's like the kind of the thing where you crawl, walk, and then run. Mm-hmm. It's like the state needs to really adopt the model of, hey, let's take our times and do this right. We, If we're going to legalize it and decriminalize it, at a minimum, people can possess it. The arrest can stop. Now let's figure out a way to actually create the right, you know, industry. Um, so I feel like that's something like states can just be mindful about, like being realistic from the onset with your public and saying that we're going to do it right and it's going to take time. Yeah. I mean, that does seem like a much more responsible path forward for states and much more, <laughs> you know, equitable and like um, starts to honor and address the historical issues that are often overlooked as states like rush to get the commercially regulated market stood up. So a hundred percent. And like to that point, I went to undergrad in, um, and I lived in Newark for four years. I don't know if you're familiar with Newark, New Jersey. A little bit. It's you are. Oh yeah. Like a little bit. Like I've, I've probably like been there, like traveled there maybe like three times for work or something, you know, (laughs) that level of familiar. So, yeah. So I, I lived there for a couple of years and it's just crazy because you like my time there, I really saw really interesting things when you see, you know, children as young as like 10 or nine years old with guns on them, selling on the corner and risking, you know, their parents or themselves risking an arrest or juvenile delinquency and, you know, all these other things. And these same individuals are left out of the industry, the legal industry. And it's like how... The state, like a state like New Jersey, you know, our, the ACLU here did a study and they found that um, African Americans were four times more likely to be arrested than an a Caucasian over cannabis possession, despite the fact that usage is the same between both, um, you know, ethnic groups. And so that says a lot. And so for a state like New Jersey, it's like, you know, if you know this is already happening in cities like Newark, where we have people who have been risking their lives and been involved in this legacy market for decades now, figuring out a path for them to get in would be the right way to do it. But instead our first version of the bill didn't even have the word social equity in it. Mm. Um, So just to give you an idea of what, yeah, it's always about, you know, profit. Um, And so that's why I wish our state would just take it, down a notch a little bit or like just slow down and so I'm definitely pushing for that here um I'm on the cannabis law committee for the state bar association and so a a couple of us lawyers have you know come together now and we want to start to give some pushback in a in a respectful way but just so that we can make sure that the industry is equitable and that we have opportunities for smaller entrepreneurs and that we don't look like every other state because that's what happens we've seen it you know in other states when 
you just allow multi-state operators or people with big resources, you're leaving out the smaller individuals from being able to have opportunities to create generational wealth. Yeah, absolutely. It's really unfortunate to see um, at the state level because I, I believe that, that cannabis legalization is an opportunity to do things differently. But in many respects, you know, we might not, we, I don't want to be terribly negative, but we're not always seeing that with the legal states, <laughs> that it's an opportunity to do things yeah. differently. Sometimes it's just um, continuing to do like the old crony capitalism sort of tactics. Yeah. And yeah, just moving very quickly to having these like wholesale mass producers, um, not even thinking about the small to middle sized guy, not addressing social equity at all you know, barely addressing um, current arrest, expungement, you know, prior records. So it's, yeah. it's I think your your advice is like, it's, it's really, really good advice. And it'd be great to see that, you know, the next, like I know there's only a handful of states really left to legalize at this point, but it'd be great to see them take like a roadmap that you're suggesting. And at, a, at the very least, it'd be awesome that when the feds decide to get involved, that maybe where they start is the decrim, the expungement, you know, the historical issues before they start to think through, you know, how to pull together all these states that already have, you know, a, a regulated model. Yeah, that was my that was my one thing. And it was kind of like, all right, well, we'll we're moving towards legalizing and decriminalizing yet we still have people sitting in jail. Mm -hmm. And that, it, it just doesn't sit well with me. And I don't know how it sits well with the government at a state level or at the federal level. And so it, it's gonna be really interesting to see when the federal government does come in, in what capacity they do, and how they allow states to continue regulating it. You know, is it gonna be like the alcohol industry where each state really does get to decide how they distribute or are we gonna see you know, more of like these craft markets, like there's so many different options that can happen. But I think the number one thing, like you said, is going to be figuring out a way where we right the wrongs and create pathways for people. If not, it's just going to, it's going to look like every other industry where people of color are excluded and women. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Are there any, anything that you've seen, like any particular measures with social equity that you've, that you think will be really helpful, right? Because I think that sometimes I'll see certain programs at the state level and I'm just not sure that they have any teeth or they're really going to matter. They kind of seem like fluff. Um, and this, I would, I can be more specific. Like I think Michigan is like this. It's sort of guidelines and ideals, but there's no ramification if, you know, you don't meet said measures for social equity as a as a business owner or um, as a municipality. So, yeah, are there? Yeah. Are is there anything you're seeing that you think is a good um, law policy regulation? And if not, is there something that you've been like that in your mind? You think this would be a really great way to go about like driving more equity and access in the industry? Yeah, I wish I could say that I've seen something really great, but even the states that like kind of were starting to get it right, like Illinois, for example, like still managed to like kind of botch it. Um, but I've, I testified in New Jersey in Senate and I provided in writing my suggestions for what the state can do. And that was the creation of some sort of like 
incubator model or a grant program or funding pretty much. So the state's going to collect tons of money on sales revenue, right? Tax revenue. And so New Jersey has already said that we're going to set aside at least 70% of all sales tax revenue to go towards community reinvestment and impact zones and creating opportunities. It's not outlined as to the specifics and like granular details, but I had expressed that to set aside um, an amount of funds to be eligible so people can apply if you're if you're eligible to for a free um, for free funding, either free or low interest loans or grants, because the main issue is capital and then it's um, like continued support. So I propose so each state has small business development centers and there they exist so that you can get help with things like your business plan or creating a website, you know, in general marketing advice. Anything you can imagine that a small business would need, there's small business development centers pretty much in each state. And so we need that level of support for the cannabis industry and especially for smaller entrepreneurs. And so if the state can set aside some of their tax dollars to create, you know, a new office or a new agency that's issuing out these free or low interest loans and issuing out grants that are easy to apply for, for eligible people. So now they can get access to the capital they need to get started, but also get the support they need um, through the small business kind of, you know, center. Um, because that's the key, right? It's like you can win a license and then what? Be, being sustainable, holding on to your operations and make, being profitable is is round two now. And you you need help. And I feel like that's where a lot of states fail. It's like you can give out these social equity applicants, but then you need to be able to provide support after the fact as well so that they can be successful. So I feel like there's a two-step model. Step one is actually using the tax revenue that states are already getting and setting aside this kind of fund so people can get access to the capital. And then two, providing a place where people can go and getting ongoing business support and services. Gosh, that's a really excellent. So I pushed that in New Jersey. Let's hope it happens. (laughs) I'm sorry, what'd you say? I said, um, I pushed that in New Jersey. I, I wrote that like in written comments and testified on that in Senate. So hopefully they can take some part of that, you know, into practicality. Well, I, those are like really excellent suggestions. I think it, it resonates even just with something I've been thinking about recently, which is in many ways, getting to the licensing, getting licensed feels like the finish line because it is such a journey. And um, there's oftentimes like many hurdles and it's difficult, but it really is just a new starting line. And so to your point, like it's, it's more than just getting people licensed. It's keeping them in the market. And um, I think that's a really, really excellent point, because oftentimes it is just about an, a certain number of licensees at, at a state level or at a local level. Exactly. And that's the thing. It's like no one realizes like this is a business and not no one, but like a lot of people forget like this is a business. And I don't know what the statistics are, but over 90 percent of businesses or some crazy number are not successful after year five. Um, and so it's like if you realize that this is a new industry with new opportunities and these entrepreneurs are going to get support are going to need support and there's going to be issues down the road. We need to anticipate those, especially as a state, as a government agency and provide the resources so that the economic boom that we want to see will actually be justified and it'll be met realistically because we're going to plan for it. But if we're 
laying out a whole foundation of this industry without providing services and support, that's when we're going to see the monopoly um, happen. Right? And, and some states already do have that in the cannabis industry. You'll have like these Goliaths coming in and taking over. You'll see a flurry of mergers and acquisitions taking place. And, and I hope we don't have that. Yeah, I mean, you really do. And, it, and it's, it's heartbreaking to watch. You really do see it across a number really of is. legal states. So, I mean, we're starting to, you know, see see more of it here in Michigan, I guess. Um, and I mean, things are certainly getting very heated here right now. Those bigger companies all have a super pact and they're working with the legislator to remove caregivers completely. Like, you know, caregivers aren't allowed. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're not allowed to supply the licensed supply chain anymore. At one point, caregivers were allowed to drop off flour or some form of, you know, concentrate uh, grows and processors and then dispensaries. And then they slowly kind of removed and disallowed that. But now it looks like they're suggesting that, you know, there's just no caregiver laws at all. So you can't become a certified caregiver you know, with it, with the state of Michigan, which I, from my understanding, is a fairly similar path that a lot of legal states end up following. Like in addition, like they legalize and then over time where they had this caregiver patient model, they get rid of it. Right. But the, the point remains is that sometimes the people with an interest in money, um, a primary interest in money, will do anything to keep that money. <laughs> and so they, and then they will work together to ensure that they're all kind of keeping that same pot of money. And that can be, oh, yeah. you know, and that's, that's the keeping caregivers out. That's the, you know, removing or kind of taking the knees out of social equity measures. That's right to um, changing the rules so that they don't have nearly as many competitors. Um, and it is all around kind of, heartbreaking to see but I guess not surprising because it does happen in so many other industries yeah that's the thing right it's all about money at the end of the day for a lot of these bigger players and they're going to operate the same as they are in other industries and so in you know in New Jersey for example a bill was just passed it didn't get signed into law yet but it passed through the senate and assembly and I feel really shitty about not doing something about it, but I couldn't be everywhere. But what that bill says is that investment funds can now come in or existing alternative treatment centers. So medical, vertically integrated medical providers can come in and invest in up to 10 social equity applicants for up to 40% each and they get repaid. So they would, they're essentially giving money they get 40% in your company, up to 40%. You repay them the money they invested. No. Not through profit. I don't know how the repayment works. And it's through, you know, their IP, et cetera, which... No. Okay. It sounds nice that you're going to fund people, but it's going to be through your IP, through your control. If they default, you can regain ownership. It's a terrible model. It's not really incentivizing smaller entrepreneurs. It's giving investment funds an opportunity to come in and get a large piece of the pie. That's hateful. It's so hateful. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's frustrating. And that's why it gets exhausting. I've had moments where I'm like, I don't, I can't do it all alone. And I, and I know it's not on me solely, but sometimes you feel really shitty when you see a bill like this get passed and you're like, well, there was no opportunity to even speak up. <laughs> so that's the other thing. A lot of like what happens happens at a, 
at the state level and, you know, the public meetings are not held publicly. They're, you know, they're in closed sessions sometimes or they don't want public comment or you have to do it through writing and then your comments don't go anywhere anyways. And it's such a, it's a frustrating process. It's super political in New Jersey. I'm sure it is in many other states where, you know, you work through lobbyists and you have to have an in at the capital level and it's, it's hard, but all that to say, you know, as we move forward, I think smaller players and people with really solid business plans who have something unique to offer and then an experience to create will still be sustainable, right? We still have our local, people still like local, people still like craft. And I feel like there's going to be opportunities because a lot of the big players don't understand the market demographics that they're coming in to serve. They just care about making the bottom line, which means inevitably you're not always going to be serving the best interests of your consumer. Yeah, I really couldn't agree more. What I believe is unique about cannabis is that the consumer is a lot more sophisticated. Um, at least yeah. the consumer that has been consuming for a while. I know there's a lot of people that are newer to cannabis, and but I think over time, your sophistication only increases. Like the more you consume, the more sophisticated you become. Um, maybe that's not for everyone, but I do think the majority. And so for that reason, I, I have a lot of hope that consumers will end up driving the market somewhat because of their desire for quality um, or something different. Now, I don't know, maybe I, okay. I like that you say absolutely, because sometimes I'm like, I don't know if that's a naive hope, but, and I think it will take time because initially like this crony capitalism stuff is going to continue to happen. Like exactly what you're talking about is probably happening in every state. I mean, it's sort of the nature of the system that we're in, like this government, business, it's just, it's like money, politics. It's so, it ends up becoming so corrupt. And, um, and so it's like that, that fight almost like needs to play itself out. And then, and then at some point the cannabis consumer, like, and where they're buying and what their preferences are, will just be, um, the reality of who's successful in the marketplace, whether or not you like worked to change the rules in your favor. This is my ideal. Like, this is my hope. But I think that would take that will take time. That's like five, seven, ten years, you know, and that is a lot of effort. Um, It is like a not giving up of the people who are like truly committed to the patient, to the consumer, to the plant, to this to this idea of quality, fairness, equity, you know, economic opportunity, all of that. It's like that that group of folks like the you. Um, not getting tired and keep going. Yeah, no, I think you're right. It's, it's, uh, there's so much power in um, a collective voice. Like, like I, I always give like the analogy, like if you're in a well and like you're yelling from the bottom, you feel like you're like in this void and you're, you're not being heard. But if there's like 10 of you, you're going to, you're probably going to get heard. And yeah. so I realized the power of team building and, and doing things in as a community and as, as an organization, your voice is just that much louder. And, you know, we've seen like the change with advertising and traditional marketing. It's not TV anymore the way it used to be for certain categories like sports. Yeah, I'm sure it will always be, you know, and, and as long as that is a monopoly on the TV network. But um, social media is taking over, right? There's influencer campaigns now and the people are starting to take 
take it into their own hands. And so I feel like with cannabis too, the consumer can drive up the demand based on how they start to um, collaborate with other people. Cause I can communicate now me being in New Jersey, I'm talking to people in California, I'm talking to people in India and you know, we're aligning our ideas and we're going to figure out how to like speak up and like have more unity and, and so that we can be stronger together. And so I feel like you're right. It's going to happen. Will it take time? Absolutely. But it's, it's going to happen. I think I'm optimistic as well because I feel like the plant is different and most consumers for who, you know, who are regular users or even just novices new to it. I think everybody kind of sees like the plant as medicinal or wellness, healing, like health. And there's just like this positivity aspect to it that I feel like the plant in itself is going to um, like take away all the negative or like or kind of wean out all the bad folks. <laughs> I just feel like the plant has the power to do that. That's really beautiful. I love that. Thank you. So for for someone, for people who have like similar sort of values and ideals that are in a legal state where they, you know, believe that there should be a space for the small to medium sized guy, that they want the industry to be like more representative of the actual population of the United States um, and the folks that were most affected by cannabis prohibition. Um, for people who maybe still want caregivers to remain in the market, just have these more, um, less, less of the corporate ideals and more of the cannabis community ideals, and maybe don't have the legal background like you do. What are some ways that we can, in these legal states, start to get our voice heard or affect change? Yeah, I think one of the best ways, as an individual, if I was somebody who, you know, didn't, if I wasn't a lawyer and if I wasn't, if I can take myself out of the equation as a lay person, how do I navigate? It definitely does feel intimidating, but finding out, you know, who are going to be the sponsors of the future legalization bill or who are the current sponsors at the state level. So looking up, you know, your Senate, your assembly members and finding out who's in support and who's against going and setting up meetings, you know, sending out an email to a county clerk or a city clerk, it's all public information, right? So Googling your town and finding out who's the contacts, setting up meetings with your local leaders, meetings with the assembly leaders, Senate leaders, and, and telling them about your concerns because most people don't realize elected officials, they, they kind of have to listen because you voted for them. <laughs> so if they're in your district, they're going to make time for you. And, and that just means you have to be a little persistent and don't give up. I mean, it might take you five, 10 times of emailing or calling the same person to get a meeting, but you will get the meeting if, as long as you don't stop. And I feel like the best way to get your voice heard is to do that at a local level starting. So cities and town halls, they have meetings, you know, either biweekly or at least once a month, all public record, Googling when your city council is having a meeting and getting yourself on the agenda, getting cannabis on the agenda. You as a public citizen can do that. So showing up to your council meetings, talking about it will inevitably connect you with other people. And then reaching out at the state level as well, each senator and each assembly men and women, they have a chief of staff that is assigned to handle their scheduling and other things. So finding out who their chief of staff is, is a way that you can get connected with the political leaders in the state. But that's, the, the best way to get in touch with elected officials if you, is, is to reach out and it's free and it's public records. Um, and it's also, you know, I guess starting to figure out like mapping out your own plan and vision, like what is it, what, 
what is it that you're looking to do? Are you looking to just get regulations shaped a certain way? Are you looking to create a micro license for certain types of people? Or, or are you looking to get a license? Figuring out what it is that you're looking to do and then being prepared to have that conversation and also being prepared with the opposite. Because knowing that, you know, in any legalized state or a state that's about to legalize it, it's always about what are the concerns, resident concerns, what are, you know, what about law enforcement, all the negatives, going prepared with how to respond to those negatives is only going to better help you facilitate the conversations. So um, setting up meetings and being equipped to handle both sides of the conversation and, and keep keep at it because you're get, you'll, you'll eventually get there. I mean, it took me years um, on the back end and on the on the sidelines before I even was recognized or was able to feel, you know, um, like my voice is getting heard, but it's just being persistent. So what are you most excited about with respect to just, what are you most excited about for 2021? Oh, there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> most excited about, you know, seeing where Blades Responsibly takes me. So there's a couple of, so now that New Jersey's legal and, you know, there's a lot that's happening I want to really put together a virtual and then in-person series that's powered by Blaze Responsibly, where I'm really educating the community. So holding mini workshops for licensing applications and job readiness, and that's going to be something that I work on. And then just general educating you know, community members about what legalization is, working with municipalities and counties to kind of create like a public health campaign on legalization, what that looks like, changing, you know, day or curriculum, for example. So a lot of education and content creation is going to be happening through Blaze Responsibly. So definitely excited to see that, you know, come to fruition this year. And then also with um, Digital Venture Partners, the company that I joined, there's a couple of cool branding and, and content um, creation platforms that we're about to engage in. So excited to share that with the world as that happens. But I'm just looking forward to meeting more people who are like-minded continuing to educate myself and like I'm just like a sponge this year and always but um I feel really blessed to be in this time right now and I just am grateful to be able to be on my path because it took a long time but um I, I think for anybody who has any passion like as long as you keep at it like it'll work out and I see it finally happening and I do feel like 2021 is the year where um I'll get to really take off with Blaze Responsibly and some of the other initiatives I've been working on. I'm excited. Oh, that's amazing. I love that. So where can people find Blaze Responsibly? Yeah. So right now it's on Instagram. So you can find me on Instagram at Blaze Responsibly. You can find me on Twitter at Blaze Responsibly and LinkedIn at Blaze Responsibly. Soon I'll have a website, but for now it's all on social media. No, that's beautiful. It's like I said, it's really great content, like super educational, like quick, easy to digest. I just love it. So Thank you. yeah, that's the goal for people. It's like to be able to like look at it and say like, okay, you know, my car smells like weed. What happens if I get pulled over? <laughs> Something like easy for right. people to know, right? Because basic questions that people want to know all the way to like, you know, how do I get a license? Like what's, I've even dropped a bank in there, like my referral um, so that people have access to a cannabis friendly bank. So it's really like providing tools for people. And um, it's it's giving other lawyers a run for their money because <laughs> I, I think certain information should be 
available for everybody for free. And so that's what Blaze Responsibly kind of is doing. That, that is really beautiful, Shirali. You are, you're really awesome. There's like so many impactful things that you're doing and you really do live in alignment with your values and um, I know it hasn't been like an easy road always, but you stuck with it and you were tenacious. And it's it's really awesome to see someone at a point in their journey where they just feel very blessed and grateful for where they're at because of how hard you've worked and how many things are kind of coming together. And I imagine there's certain things that are coming into your reality that are better than you even imagined. And that's like a true testament to like just sticking sticking to something, sticking to your values, like staying in your integrity. It's a true testament to what that will do. Yeah, absolutely. I think in just staying true to yourself and your purpose and not paying attention to what anybody else is doing, except for the the highlights and the positives. You know, I feel like when you start to compare your progress or like doubting is, is it's always going to make, it's, it's never going to help you. And I've learned the hard way because I went through those moments. So like for anybody that does listen in, you know, just knowing that everybody has their their own journey and their own purpose and staying true to who you are and who you are as a person, you're, you're never going to go wrong. And I feel like hard work pays off no matter what. So as long as you keep working at it and being, you know, diligent and determined and you're coming with good intentions, the universe is always going to figure it out for you. So there's enough out there for everybody. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think that's a really beautiful note to end things on. You've been just really fun. I really appreciate this conversation and I'm so excited to, to just keep in touch and to know you. And I, I, yeah, this was really great. Like this is a lot of beautiful, really well-founded advice and thank you for everything that you do and the energy that you bring. Thanks so much, Ashley, for having me. I really appreciate you and the platform that you've created to let people like myself share our stories um, and, and I hope that people do engage, follow me on Blaze Responsibly and just stay tuned for what's to come. So thank you. You've reached the end of another episode of the Cannabis Curious Podcast with your hostess, Ashley. Subscribe to my podcast on iTunes or Spotify. Learn more about me, my guests, and important issues affecting the cannabis community at my website, thecannabiscurious.com. Like, subscribe, and share wherever you can. I always appreciate your support, and I can't wait to catch you on the next episode. Bye!